Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. Hello and welcome to the Race Haven Podcast. This is solutions-focused dialogue about race relations in America. My name is Dr. Scott Speed and I am the facilitator of the dialogue. This is episode 18 of Race Haven and today I am joined by my co-host and friend, John Costino. John, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great, Scott. How about yourself? I am doing excellent. John, I'm really excited today because today we have a special guest, Dr. Walter Greeson. And I want to tell you and our listeners a little bit more uh, about Dr. Greeson before we bring him on and introduce him to our listeners. Dr. Dr. Walter Greeson is the CEO of the International Center for Metropolitan Growth. He has taught at hundreds of colleges and universities across the United States since 1997 and is currently teaching business and economic development at Monmouth University. Dr. Greeson's research interests include African and American history, emphasizing the relationship between poverty and economic development. His interests also include the transatlantic slave trade, innovation and experiential education, and the intellectual legacy of white supremacy. For the last 20 years, he has established himself as the world's leading authority on the economics of race and metropolitan growth, serving the world's most prosperous metropolitan region, the Boston to Washington, D.C. corridor. Dr. Greeson has advised hundreds of businesses and organizations on fiscal management, investment and development strategies. He also currently serves as the treasurer of the Society for American City and Regional Planning History and is an officer on the membership committee of the Organization of American Historians. Recently, Dr. Greeson won recognition, excuse me, won recognition as a visiting scholar at James Madison University in Virginia, and his next book, Suburban Erasure, will be available really soon. So let's uh, say hello to Dr. Greeson. Let me get him on here. Dr. Greeson, how are you doing today? Morning, morning, Scott. How do you feel? I am doing great, and I'm also joined by my co-host, John. Hi, John. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dr. Greeson, we're so honored to, you know, to have you this morning and, and that you've uh, carved out some time to share uh, your vast uh, knowledge base and, and history with us. And uh, I want to share with our listeners today how we first met. Uh, I want to say that I met you through the Race Haven Community Dialogue page uh, when you became a member there. And I want to ask you, because I do not know, uh, we actually spoke briefly last week for the first time by phone, but we've in- mm-hmm. interacted through the Race Haven page. And I want to know, how did you learn about the Race Haven Community Dialogue page on Facebook? Yeah, so I think I've been a member there probably almost two years. And so um, social media, digital humanities work has been a part of my career for a very long time, before I was even a professional historian. And so um, my computer design background drew me uh, to Facebook generally in 07. But then when it really exploded and started to expand around 2010, 2011, 
um, I started using a lot of the different group pages and uh, the interactive forums that had emerged there to spread the word about the questions we weren't asking. And so Race Haven came to me specifically through a Philadelphia poet named Shalita Hale, who um, actually I, I had encountered her not through Facebook initially, but back in the day through MySpace. So you know you're going back in the digital archive, going, wow, going through yes. Facebook there. And so she had done a poetry event for me in Pennsylvania celebrating Dr. King, I want to say around 2008. And then um, when the Race Haven Forum um, became part of what she was doing, she made the suggestion to me. She's like, oh, this is a great group of people. They can really benefit from the work that you're doing. Come here and join the conversation. And so that's how I came to be a part of Race Haven. Wow, I love it. I love uh, the six degrees of separation and how the world works and how, you know, you're, you, you know, you end up meeting the people you're supposed to meet because Shalita uh, and I, uh, we used to work together uh, when mm -hmm. I still lived in the Philadelphia area some years ago. And, uh, you know, she became a member of that group and, you know, she's a, someone that I value. Her friendship is, is one that I value. And, you know, I'm glad, so glad that she introduced you to the Race Haven Forum. And uh, with that being said, um, you know, I appreciate you giving us that background. So I want to share with our listeners that today we're going to dialogue uh, with Dr. Greeson about his work and his research and how it impacts race relations in America. But before we start the interview slash dialogue, uh, I'd like to tell our listeners about how they can become patrons of the show. My goal is to have an entirely user supported show free of advertisements. So I created a Patreon page recently, which is an online platform where our listeners can earn cool perks like a custom Race Haven t-shirt by supporting the ongoing improvement in quality of the show for as little as $1 a month. So please visit racehavenpodcast.com and click become a patron to see all of the details. I'd like to thank our most recent patron, our, excuse me, our most recent patrons, uh, Jake Tate Malone. I want to say thank you so much for uh, believing in the work that we're doing here with Race Haven. And I also want to thank uh, an anonymous donor. Uh, we have an anonymous donor who contributed, contributed uh, a brand new microphone uh, to me to record these shows. So today I am recording for the first time on uh, a brand new microphone that should enhance the sound quality and clarity uh, of my voice during these podcasts. So it is really, really cool. It looks like I have a little studio in my house. I'm going to take a picture and post it uh, on our Facebook group page because this is really cool. I never envisioned doing this. So it's just, it's just interesting how all this evolves. And now I have a, a microphone with the handle and, and the whole setup here uh, right in my home office. So it's so cool. So I want to thank that anonymous donor and, you know, just anyone who's chosen to contribute and become a patron uh, to this point. It's been about two weeks since we started, since, since, you know, we launched the, the page and I just can't express how much uh, it makes, you know, how good it makes me feel to know that uh, people value this work and, and they feel like we're adding value uh, to their lives. And most importantly to society, uh, it just means so much to me because when I started this process two years ago, I just wanted to try to make a difference. And it's the little things like, you know, the, the contributions and not even the contributions, not, I'm sorry, not only the contributions, but also, uh, you know, the comments, the likes, uh, and just you listening, the listens to this show, uh, all those things validate that it was worth it. It was worth, you know, endeavoring on this journey. Uh, so I want to thank all of you, our listeners, and all of our patrons. Thank you so much. So 
with that being said, uh, our listeners are used to John and I dialoguing since we started this new format with John uh, joining me as a co-host officially. Um, and today, this is our first co-interview. Uh, so I'm excited about that, where John and I are both going to have a chance to interview uh, Dr. Greeson. So, uh, Dr. Greeson, to start the show, because this is a show uh, based on race relations in America, I want to start by you sharing uh, with our listeners, uh, just to ask some, uh, what is your ethnicity and where did you grow up? All right. I uh, self-identify as African-American, but I had an extraordinarily kind of unusual, diverse upbringing um, in New Jersey in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. Um, so I grew up in a segregated suburb, a uh, place called Freehold, New Jersey, and then later um, a very rural um, African-American migrant community in a larger township called Manalapan. And so um, if, if you take a look at suburban erasure, that, that's really what drew me to that subject of research was growing up in the area. Um, my family had some health issues at the time I was finishing my Ph.D., and so I had to tell the story of what was happening to the people who made my life possible but also place it in global economic context that um, how were black farming communities being destroyed by uh, residential and, and commercial suburbanization through the 80s and 90s, and um, what was being lost, how a forgotten chapter of the civil rights movement was literally being erased from the landscape through that process. And so um, I'm African-American, but I also grew up um, in, in a school that had a lot of folks from um, Italy, from Israel, from Syria, um, Lebanon, from Japan and Korea and the Philippines. And so the school that I attended from when I was, you know, four or five years old until I graduated from high school, um, I was the only African-American in my grade for all but two years. And the school had about hmm, 600 people. And there were never more than, you know, never more than seven or eight African-Americans in the entire school at the time. So that that was a profound impact on me to kind of get introduced to the standard of what people considered American civilization, what, what folks in the 19th century called Anglo-Saxonism. Um, my school was permeated with those ideas and assumptions. And then having to live through that and adapt and grow into it, while at the same time being deeply steeped um, four or five days a week um, in both the Baptist and Methodist traditions in the black community, um, that is that combination has has proven to shape my entire life. Of how do you build a bridge between people with wildly different cultural expectations and backgrounds? Interesting. Um, you actually, you know, got into my next question, which which was how did your upbringing impact your views on race in America? And I think you just answered that, um, and how that intersection of the various cultures and being steeped in uh, the European Anglo-Saxon values that the country was built on, uh, you were introduced to those at a very young age uh, based on your surroundings and ultimately brought you to a place where it sounds like I'm hearing you say that uh, based on your, you know, your background as an African-American being raised in, in that family environment and church environment and community, community environment, but then going to a school and seeing uh, various uh, ethnicities uh, and getting introduced to the, uh, the, I guess, American norms of society, you, it, I want to focus on that, what you said in terms of wanting to build a bridge. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and why you chose that language in terms of deciding that you wanted to use your experiences to build a bridge? Yeah, so in a sense, 
I guess there's several ways to speak to that. I could take up, you know, multiple hours on that topic. But um, to do it quickly, the school environment I was in um, had no idea. They, they couldn't imagine the kinds of daily life routines my family and neighbors experienced. Um, it just it was unimaginable to them. These were generally fairly affluent families. They, they could afford to pay, you know, at least on average eight to nine thousand dollars a year above whatever everybody else paid for public education to send them to, to this private academy and they just they had no sense, none at all, of any degree of African American culture. And at the same time the kind of Anglo Saxonism they were being exposed to um was meant to help them assimilate as people who were not British or of Northern Europe. This was a way for them, now that they had achieved some degree of wealth, to begin to climb a very elite ladder and compete to kind of get access to uh, the Harvards and Yales and Princetons of the world. Um, it was a way for first-generation American parents to really help their children, the grandchildren of immigrants, become part of the American elite. That was really what the school was designed to do. The only, you know, African American child of African American farm workers in the school, um, they they just had no concept of the world that I came from. So building the bridge in that sense was not just from the kind of rural black experience in the north, which is weird in its own context, but then not just to kind of elite New England Anglo-Saxonism, but to a group of immigrants trying to join that elite. And so I was constantly negotiating how people were making choices to improve their lives, not just in a material sense, but to feel like their character and their values were improving. And then I was exposed to a great professor named um, Oti Mumalo from South Africa, who became, a, he was living in exile um, under apartheid in uh, 1990. And he showed me the global context of that same struggle. And so I went on from there to Villanova University which was a kind of um, elite Catholic institution based in serving a really regional population from Long Island and New Jersey, perhaps a little bit out of Maryland, and globalizing that as an institution, helping them see that the university itself could be a platform to bring people to a larger world and help them be fuller, more capable, more determined human beings. And so my whole life has been built around tearing down barriers of segregation and inequality um, from my, my, my earliest days of imagining. I'd say I really dedicated my life to that mission by the time I was 16 or 17 years old, and, and it's been every day ever since. Interesting. Uh, I want to let John jump in here because I, I, I'm sure uh, your story is resonating with him a little bit because John is also from uh, New Jersey, and he went to – uh, a Catholic university in Philadelphia or right, you know, St. Joseph's university, which is oh, uh, rival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a rival and, and uh, with Villanova. And I'm from that area as well. Um, you know, I grew up right near city line Avenue uh, in oh, Winfield. Yeah. yeah. In West Philly and Winfield. So I'm from that area as well. So, uh, you know, we definitely uh, have all crossed paths or, or walked the same streets at some point. Uh, so John, do you have any questions or uh, anything for Dr. Greeson at this time? At this point, honestly, Dr. Greeson, I'm enjoying uh, hearing your perspective because, as Scott mentioned, I do I did grow up in the in the same area, um, and have 
almost the same type of, uh, of experience. I grew up in very South Jersey uh, in mm-hmm. Voorhees, right outside of Philadelphia, yes, uh, about the same time. So I was in, in grammar school in the late 70s and early 80s as well. And, uh, and completely resonate with the perspective that you're bringing in that um, in the suburbs I grew up in, it was relatively uh, European-American and more to the point, all the uh, the Philadelphia athletes lived in that suburban area. Mm-hmm. So the kids that I grew up with were the children of Philadelphia Eagles, Philadelphia mm-hmm. Sixers, Philadelphia Phillies. So as you can imagine, it was for me it was a different environment. And as I've shared on the uh, the podcast many times, I did not grow up in the middle of you know the traditional aspect of racism. It, we didn't see it that way. And, uh, and so mm. I'm thoroughly enjoying uh, listening to you. So honestly, thank you for being here. And I'm going to kick it back over to you, Scott, because I really don't have any questions at this point, but I'm enjoying to uh, more than that, hopefully as much as the listeners hearing this. Thanks, John. That, that, I'd love to talk with you more about that experience growing up there. I'm fascinated. Absolutely. So I'd like to ask you at this time, Dr. Greeson, what attracted you to becoming a historian uh, and, and, and not just a historian, but you have an interesting background uh, as a historian and a, like an economist. Uh, so if you could speak to uh, what attracted you to becoming a historian and a researcher on the economics of, of race uh, and ethnicity in America, but also globally. I know that you study it globally. So if you can kind of speak Absolutely. to that, that would be great. No problem. So um, I guess the shortest way to answer that, I've always been fascinated, like I said, with social change. And I think I had to come to grips with the social and cultural ways and the legal ways that um, different forms of racism and segregation evolved. And so I spent, you know, most of my late teenage years and early 20s understanding that. that. When I started my doctoral process, it was at Temple University, and um, their strength in, in that particular Ph.D. program was dealing with um, urbanization, dealing with how cities form. And so I spent five years before my dissertation um, studying and teaching about industrialization and urban growth. And it was fascinating. I learned so much about the ways that um, large factory cultures and different kinds of industries emerged in different places, uh, the way that labor unions impacted, the way the politics operated through the first half of the 20th century. And so there's a lot of fascinating stories in doing that work at Temple. Uh, When I began the work on doing uh, really the only study of suburbanization in the context of eliminating a northern civil rights struggle um, project helped me take the tradition of looking at civil rights in urban context and then broadening it to look at suburbs. As I looked at the process of how suburbs were formed, I had to learn a great deal about real estate finance, and that was not a part of of the core graduate program at Temple. That was largely self-taught for me to figure out how large developers like the Toll Brothers or Kehovnanian um, engage in the process of borrowing from banks through taking advantage of loan programs that are guaranteed either through Congress or through the Federal Reserve, and then figuring out how just how the economies of scale enable those real estate companies to utterly transform the landscape of, of rural areas, not just in New Jersey, but across the country. And so when I began to understand that the world that I grew up in, where someone who made $80,000 or $100,000 was 
upper middle class to borderline affluent or wealthy, um, that these folks were rapidly going to be left behind as the 21st century started, that, in fact, if you weren't in a world where you understood how to make $150,000, $200,000, $250,000 a year, um, you, you would be essentially consigned to poverty to, to one degree or another. And so this is what I was discovering by about 2001, 2002. And so I started to teach a course called um, Engines of Wealth, that combined urban history with this really more forward-looking financial analysis of the way the American national economy had evolved and the way the world economy was going to continue to evolve. And so that's been my work for, you know, I've, I've been working to publish Suburban Erasure, and thank God it was published in uh, 2013 and won a number of awards, and it's done very well in the last three years. But um, this past January, I published um, The American Economy, which was the first hint of what I've been studying since 2002 in the ways that a, a free market, free enterprise system was born in the United States in the 1770s and 1780s and how those assumptions from the 18th century have continued to inform and shape the way both law governs commerce and the way kind of the unconscious choices of what we think is possible are still rooted in the late 18th and early 19th century. And so now I have a number of new books coming out over the next two or three years about the subject. I'm going to be looking at, at particularly defining globalization more accurately. I think one of the most promising features is that at the um, Davos conference in Europe this past summer, a major thesis of my work that uh, GDP does not actually predictably measure the uh, well-being of a national economy has now been adopted by some of the most prominent economists around the world. So I'm, I'm very excited at that, that my work on asset value, a uh, different way to understand what prosperity means for not just a small segment of the population, but for humanity as a whole and for nations and, and their working people. Um, that process is going to be the work of my next decade, that we can come up with a better system. And the most applied way that this take, takes off is that um, in understanding real estate finance, I came to see the way that different kinds of asset classes create intergenerational wealth that really eliminate poverty very rapidly. And so I've designed a system that helps folks, a um, good number of folks who are in poverty in the U.S., earning less than $10,000 a year, um, can go to the place where they're more stable, not, not in any perfect shape, but they can be earned twenty five. $30,000, $50,000 a year, and that makes a huge difference for a single wage earner dealing with, you know, multiple dependents, whether they're elder care or um, small children. And so that's one big revolution. But the entire ladder that I created, this wealth practice system, is a way to get everybody not just from poverty to stability, but to take folks who are middle class, household incomes at the $80,000 level, the $120,000 level, and get them to really grow out of the middle class, to take advantage of what had been promised for so long as an American dream. Um, how do they get to the place where really uh, passive income streams dominate their lives and they have the flexibility not to have to work um, 60, 70 hours a week just to pay their bills for their entire life? And that's, that's the system that I, I've now formally incorporated as my company, and I, I do a lot of that work as part of the private sector that goes along with my academic work to both bring large-scale investment to working neighborhoods, but also to help working people in segregated areas, low-income areas, 
understand how to make better choices so that they can take advantage of the way the global market is evolving around them. Wow, that's uh, very, very interesting. Um, can go a lot of different directions with this. Uh, so the last thing that you said was that um, how you're creating systems for, you know, to, to drive passive income so that people can live the American dream. And that's the work with your company now. Is that company you're speaking of, the International Center for Metropolitan Growth? Yes, yeah. Is that a for-profit company or a non-profit company? And can you tell uh, the listeners more about that, that company? Yeah. Or is there anything else so, you can share outside of, what you've, outside of what you've already shared? No, no, absolutely. And I, I just, you know, I, I do want to focus on the academic stuff too, so I'm careful not to go one too, one direction or the other too much. But um, mm-hmm. back in 97, 96 actually, someone brought me a historical document and reminded me it was actually 96, um, I founded a nonprofit organization called the Ujima Collective. And this is based on one of the Swahili words out of Kwanzaa's collective work and responsibility. And this was based in Philly. We published uh, newsletters and websites for about five years. Um, we served at its max, like in 2001, about a quarter million people and set up programs to send young people from the Philadelphia area off to local schools with full scholarships. The program that's now been adopted by the city government has been expanded dramatically. Um, but Ujima was my, my and my partners, uh, Lewis Manning and um, Oscar Gamble's uh, way of getting Philadelphia youth to take advantage of the opportunities, not just in education, but in the marketplace to build events and to build cross-cultural coalitions um, through the universities, through their high schools and churches and neighborhoods. It would become a more cohesive city. And I think, as we see with this convention that's happening, um, there's some extraordinary engagement, both within the convention and in the streets as people protest. Uh, Philadelphia has become one of the most dynamic cities in the United States based on some of the principles we were working on now 20 years ago. I can't believe that. But Ujima, when I went in and got my first tenure-track job and I was working in the college, I converted it into a more for-profit structure to help fundraise for Africana Studies programs that didn't receive budgets from local universities. And when I actually pulled off a project in Phoenixville, PA, out in the suburbs and um, from the border, I guess, of um, Montgomery County, uh, if you go out on 30, you'll run into Phoenixville, we helped them pull off a project that um, made about $50 million for the town. And I was like, oh, we can do some really good work on, on a state level, on a national level, using the same kind of framework. So I converted the Ujima baseline kind of blueprint into a for-profit model to make it the International Center for Metropolitan Growth. And that was the way that we were both opening the door for folks to have a more stable household financially, but also to let folks know around the world, um, large-scale investors who would put in, you know, $5 million, you know, upwards of, you know, $600 million into different projects. How do we actually take real institutional investment and place it where it's most needed. How do we get into places like Norristown? How do we get into places like Chester or Camden? And really, without having to kind of go through government grants and and really rely on political connections, how can we get the private sector to move in a way that is socially just? And and that's what the Center for Metropolitan Growth has been about, is that the the dynamic that we've created is that the world market is much stronger than any 
even coalition, trade network of powerful national governments. Um, coming out of Brexit, for instance, just as an example, um, they're talking about, oh, we're not going to pay $600 billion a year back into the Eurozone. Um, instead, we're going to leverage that money to create a trade network between Australia and the United States. Well, that's great for my company in particular because about two-thirds of that money is going to come into efforts uh, like my incubator to bring new investment and create new startups in the U.S. But the people that I work with who are in Newark or Jackson, Mississippi, or Oakland, uh, community activists, even folks who do pretty impressive stuff with um, community development corporations and work through the uh, Congressional Black Caucus offices, they don't tap into those large streams of capital that really enable folks like you with a show like this in Race Haven um, to hire staff and pull in 15 people and doing your marketing, doing your advertising, making sure you have the stream of money coming through to make your show really what it is. It's the future of radio. And that's the kind of thing I get to do pretty much every day is whatever your particular passion and project is, I can find banks and insurance companies potential advertisers, potential sponsors who want to come on board and basically transform the scale of the economy that you serve, how the market actually serves your mission. And um, so last week, for instance, very exciting stuff, project I've worked on for six years is uh, the T. Thomas Fortune House in Red Bank, New Jersey. Um, Fortune was a journalist, very much like you guys, and he exposed the horrors of lynching long before Ida Wells Barnett, um, before the rise of Booker T. Washington. He essentially helped create the idea of Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee machine, and he was forgotten. He'd been largely erased, and he lived in the local house here near where I teach. And so I worked with the folks on that committee, and we went through multiple cycles of trying to get fundraising and struggling to get the money together. But finally, local developers come on board and put up $5 million or excuse me, $2.5 million to rehab the property and make it a sustainable site to revitalize a, a very deteriorated, economically neglected area. And, yes, he's going to make a profit off of it. It's, it's a great effort for him to take on because it's going to do well. But more importantly, that, that seed money is going to turn into, over the next 10 years, $10 million, $12 million, $25 million in, in new jobs and new business creation and educational opportunities for a population that's never seen anything like that in the last hundred years. And so wow. that's that's the kind of project I take on and I'm I'm constantly working for as I travel around the country. That's that's amazing. And um you know, I'm 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 enjoying this insight and you know, we're gonna have to have some conversations offline as we kinda I kinda hinted at before when we spoke on the phone because you know, I, I, I could go in so many directions based on, you know, some of the other projects I'm working on as well. But um, in terms of, you know, how this all uh, deals with race and economics uh, and how they collide, you know, that's what's really fascinating. And that's why, you know, I wanted to do this show. And before I ask my follow-up question, uh, I want to know if John uh, has anything that he'd like to ask or if he'd like to jump in. Because uh, just so you know, uh, Dr. Greeson, John is uh, the CEO uh, of a company called MoneyWise. So this is right up his alley. And, uh, you know, John and I, are, we're literally uh, entrepreneurs calling to put together this show and, and to contribute to this uh, message of dialoguing, interracial dialogue about the various race relation uh, issues that we have in our country. Uh, but we're, we're entrepreneurs first. So this 
conversation really is resonating with me, and I'm sure it's resonating with him as well. John, did you have anything you'd like to ask at this time? It, it is. Nothing to ask, but again, I, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this, and, and I appreciate more than anything, uh, Dr. Greeson, what you're talking about within communities. I've been for 30 years now uh, a field representative, um, a consultant in the industry, and a corporate officer and owner in network marketing space, and I have spent my entire adult career trying to educate, you know, folks from every uh, demographic that if you truly believe in your business, and I had read your article um, about, you know, staying within your social network, staying within your local community, supporting each other, supporting each other's businesses, um, what you're bringing is just such a refreshing uh, perspective, and I'm excited. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it back over to you because I'm thoroughly enjoying listening. I promise I'm not going to ask questions just to hear myself talk. Oh, stop. It's wonderful to hear. I'd love to hear. Awesome. Well, absolutely, John. Definitely want to, um, you know, if you, if you feel like the need to jump in at any point, uh, I'll keep, you know, kicking it over to you just to uh, get your perspective or your questions. So I appreciate that. Um, so, so, moving up, so moving to my next question, um, Dr. Greeson, what is the intellectual legacy of white supremacy, and what did you find during your research of this topic? Hmm. I don't get asked that question enough, and so it, it's it's one of the biggest things. It's why I talk very pointedly about Anglo-Saxonism. Um, so I guess to frame it, when I graduated college and had a, a initial understanding of the evolution of racism as a concept, the, the basic outlines of white supremacy in United States and world history. I was astonished at how little was taught about it before college. It, it helped me make sense of the way law and religion and science are designed. Like these basic huge concepts about how we see our world are all thoroughly infused with, with the concept of race, that they were all part of a process of justifying seeing people from Europe as white, that, that racializing of a geographic region um, into a color, and then tying that color to certain kinds of religious values and philosophical principles, the sense of scientific progress is all thoroughly um, shaped by this, this lie of Thing, those ideas are fundamentally a product of European genius, and that is a white experience. That is a white inheritance. And going back through historical documents, I, I'm still fighting with publishers to do an encyclopedia based on this topic, but it, it, you, you go back into the era between 1750 and 1850, and you see that people are making active choices to promote that propaganda. And then it works. By the middle of the 19th century, people have bought it. And it combines with the process of commercial market growth and industrialization to then become the standard of how we invent the modern world in the 20th century. Um, my next major single-authored work, uh, not an edited collection of documents, really goes in the into the details of that process. And so when I talk about the intellectual legacy uh, of essentially white identity, white supremacy. Um, it gets me away from a problem I saw coming out of college, that we understood racism as discrimination against especially black people. And I'm just saying that as people of African descent are all racialized as black to a certain extent. 
And we, we even conflate and e- equate the ideas of being white and being black as the two sides of the same coin of racialization, which doesn't really work if you go into different linguistic backgrounds. You go into a Spanish language or a Portuguese language tradition, very different processes of racialization and how those ideas get adopted. And they have different consequences socially and legally and economically. But in the Anglo-Saxon tradition of creating whiteness and then as a corollary, diminishing, demeaning, making wretched blackness um, in the law and in science and in religion, that whole legacy going into the 20th century, we've never, very, we've never taken the time to unpack it. And so when we come across a kind of miraculous moment from 1948 to 1972, when the country really steps back and says, no, we don't want to keep people segregated by law. We don't want to argue that because of the color of your skin or the texture of your hair, you will be held as superior or inferior, and not just for your life, but for the lives of all of your children. When we try to take a step back from that, we never have a really dedicated, informed discussion about removing all those tangled legacies from the society we live in every day. The one that, of course, is most profound to me is the way that uh, real estate financing is informed by this, that we, in the 1930s, 1936, 1937, um, created standards for evaluating property value that were intrinsically um, racialized, that said, okay, if you are from an Anglo-Saxon family or a Dutch family or French or German family, your property is going to be evaluated at a higher level. You're going to get more money in terms of how you can enter the market and sell your property than if you are Jewish or if you're Italian or if you're Japanese or Chinese, and certainly than if you are Native American or African American. And so just that, we've done a really good job in the last 40, 50 years of identifying that process, and then we haven't stepped into how do you actually remove those influences. Like I've had students still do ethnographic collections where they go out and try to kind of negotiate for houses, and depending on their physical appearance, shown different properties, they're told different um, prices for what the property is available for. Um, We're still in our day-to-day practice of negotiating with each other, read racial and ethnic meaning onto people that has dramatic economic consequences for their lives. And so that's also true in science. There are all kinds of ways that the way we apply the scientific method is deeply um, troubling, that you can see things, I guess, um, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks is one of these most recent studies that um, documents this, that um, if you don't know the story, it's an African-American woman in the 30s whose cells are taken, and it finds out that she has a kind of unique genetic marker that lets her cells adapt to different kinds of stimulus as she's infected, as the cells are infected with different viruses or bacteria. And it leads to pioneering breakthroughs for 50 years in the ways that we deal with cancer. Billions and billions of dollars in, in cancer treatments derived from this woman's biological matter, but her family was never notified. She was never told about the value of of the material that was taken from her. And so there's this enormous problem about using people who are seen as lesser than or inferior for economic gain and never actually including them in the process of how the structure of a free market works and evolves. And that leads to all, at least to all the stuff that we're seeing with Black Lives Matter, the kind of resentment that there's no value lives of 
people of African descent, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And so the structure of how we think and how we choose the world that we want to build, we need to step back and really take apart the way that we kind of decided who has value and who doesn't and how does that play out in the in every way that we make choices um, that look like they're colorblind, that look like, in fact, right. they're somehow race neutral. And so right. that's a very difficult process. It might take 100 years, 200 years. It took 100 years for that system to take root. So right. that's the kind of problem I'm talking about with the intellectual legacy of white supremacy. Man, uh, that that resonates with me on so many levels uh, because – you know, I, I spend time and, and I know we're Facebook friends. I'm not sure what you see that comes across my timeline, but every once in a while I, I go into the lab and I write a long blog post about just various uh, historical markers that prove how we got to the point that we are at today. And I met with a lady uh, recently, an older uh, woman of, of European descent, and we were talking about, you know, the current police relations and race relations. And she made the statement that, I don't know how it got this bad. Oh. And because I just didn't feel like, because I didn't feel like going into a long detailed conversation at that moment, I just kind of, and just kind of just mm-hmm. let it go. But in my mind, I'm thinking that's the problem. Yep. That, that sentiment right there is the problem because most people don't know how it got that bad, how things have gotten this bad in the sense that for me, it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's like anything, everything compounds. It's kind of the, the, the way I say it all the time. Everything compounds um, the same way that you can pass down gener- generational wealth and you can see how companies have, you know, their growth has compounded over time based on, or investments, how they compound or residual yeah. income, how it constantly, you know, it can mature and grow and, and passively, you know, move. So do all the things of the legacy. I guess the best way to say it, the legacy of white supremacy does the same. And the, yeah. the people who, the people who have been oppressed, by white supremacy, uh, those residual, um, you know, markers uh, or uh, effects have also compounded and you continue to see it. So when people talk about things uh, like the crime and the murders and, and poor African-American communities, et cetera, et cetera, it just, it really hurts my mind and it hurts my heart that people can't connect the dots to the history mm-hmm. and the legacy of what this country is and what it was. So it's, it's all very complex and it's all very hard, but it's interesting because immediately when you know, I, whenever I see the words white supremacy or, uh, you know, I read that in my mind and John can help me out with this. I automatically think that the average European American person who's not necessarily taking the time to go back in and, and study history, they immediately think KKK yeah. when they hear white supremacy. But it, they're, they don't unpack it any more than that. They don't understand it any more than that. And that in itself is a legacy of white supremacy, that lack of knowledge and that lack of. Uh, uh, understanding of the depths of the history of what white supremacy was is a part of the legacy of white supremacy. So, John, I just want yeah. you to, if you can give me some perspective and give our listeners some perspective on that, John, when you hear, when you read the words, the intellectual legacy of white supremacy, just on the surface, what does that mean to you? Could you ask some well, and, context? And we, absolutely. And we've, we've discussed this many times. For me, um, it, and again, at this stage, obviously, I'm much more aware because of our dialogues and because of, you know, a lot of the information I've learned over the past few months on the show. But going back to how it used to hit me, it was, it was a shocking word. It's a, it's a word 
that for me personally, because I don't have that history, I don't have that awareness, and, and I don't, as you know, Scott, I've just never resonated with the racist, prejudiced, you know, bigotry that, you know, so many people, I guess it's a part of their DNA, it's a part of their life. I've never, I've just kept myself away from people like that. So when I hear terms like white supremacist or white privilege, uh, and as we discussed in previous episodes, black power, it, it causes me that knee-jerk reaction or that, that little choking feeling like, uh, do I really want to talk to this person or do I really hear what they're going to say? Because it connotates for me a very negative aspect of our history. Is that a fair enough way to put that in perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely, John. And, and, and that's not even, um, and I like Dr. Greason to speak to this because from you and other friends, literally I just had another friend uh, who responded to a post on Facebook that just said, you know, I don't want to talk about race. You know, if you're my friend, you're my friend, but I don't want to talk about race. And I haven't responded yet because it's in response to this meme I put up that basically said that, you know, if you, you say you have, uh, you know, the, the meme says black friends, if you say you have black friends, but if you've never spoken to your, your quote unquote black friends about how race, um, you know, impacts their lives and how, you know, race in America, et cetera, has impacted their lives, then you don't really have black friends. You just know some black people. Now, obviously, most memes are intended to be inflammatory, but I, I shared that and it definitely did spark some, uh, some, some dialogue, which is a good thing in my mind, uh, where I was able to kind of clarify. But one of these friends who I've never spoken about race to, uh, you know, just chimed in and said that, you know, for him, he doesn't want to talk about race. And he's a great guy. Our kids have gone to each other's birthday parties and, you know, he's a European American and our kids have gone to each other's birthday parties and we've hung out, et cetera. Um, and, but we've never talked about race. And he chimed in to say that, you know, he just doesn't want to, and that doesn't make him a bad person. But I believe that a part of the legacy of white supremacy has put us in that place where when you hear it just as a neutral person, someone who feels like, you know, I'm quote unquote colorblind, it makes you feel, it kind of brings up all the negative connotations with what that means. But that's also a barrier to us kind of learning and and the nuance and the complexity and unpacking, you know, how all those things continue to impact us today because so many people are apathetic to it because they don't want to touch it because it's so much, you know, just negativity wrapped up in it. It also prevents us from going, you know, to the depths that we need to go to to really bring about true harmony. Uh, so what, does that make sense? What I Scott, just can I speak said, to Dr. that Grisham? real fast? Can sure, I, can I sure. Speak to that real fast? Only because I saw that meme that you put up, and this is what it, it sparked in my mind. And and I again I say this with complete respect, as you know. We did a, a show a few weeks ago uh, when we discussed Jesse Williams' speech at the BET Awards, mm-hmm. and to me it it goes right back to that. It's there's not yet a safe enough way for an individual of European-American descent to open that dialogue and even to comment, going back to the Justin Timberlake tweet that was in support of Jesse Williams that had him, you know, basically attacked via Twitter from African-American community members that didn't either understand what he was saying or didn't appreciate it, but we discussed it at length. That was a tweet from Justin Timberlake in support of Jesse Williams that because of a misunderstanding and miscommunication, what I like to believe, just a completely, you know, hot topic, polarized subject, it's just not safe yet for an individual of European-American descent to say something. So it's not that, 
you know, we don't want to discuss it or whatever. It's just there's we still this is the only place I'm aware of where you can have a debate. And even when we have the debate, and I'm clear enough in my mind in what I'm saying, it still gets miscommunicated to some of the readers who then feel the need to go out there and, you know, re-educate me again. And it's just one of those things where it, until we can have a much broader base of people participating, it's never safe for me to volunteer that without basically knowing I'm going to be misunderstood and, and in many cases, you know, schooled on, you don't understand what you're talking about, so don't talk. So the idea is we have to open the dialogue, but we've got to make it safer for everybody to speak without being uh, attacked when they're misunderstood. Yeah, sure. let, me, let me jump in on that. So there's, there's a couple things. Um, one of the key concepts John raised is this idea of privilege. And I know I celebrate the idea that privilege is in common vocabulary now. Like I can literally mark the history of that word when it comes to discussing race in the United States over the last 20 years, that in 95, 96, there was no sense of privilege. You, you could look at a couple scholars, mainly in the field of education, who uh, could deal with uh, Peggy McIntosh and uh, Ruth Frankenberg, and they were talking about this in really narrow academic circles, that there was not just racism as discrimination, there was racism as conferring benefit or advantage. And, but there was no sense of that privilege. And then in the 2000 primary, in the Democratic primary, Bill Bradley from New Jersey stood on stage debating Al Gore and said, well, what are we going to do as we face racism? What are we going to do to dismantle white skin privilege? And I know I fell out of my chair when, when he said this in a national debate stage. Ten years later, by 2010, you have a man named Tim Wise, who I've been working with for almost 15 years at that point, becomes a national, international celebrity as a white voice of the South who had fought against David Duke whose life comes to embody the idea of fighting against white privilege. And even he gets blowback as a committed educator on the issue for being white and trying to talk through racial justice issues. So, John, you, you are far from alone, but you're in the process of doing a conversation that as you fight through the blowback, you're really doing the work that's making the society a better place for all people. And so that sacrifice reminds me of a historical book that really transformed uh, the idea of the civil rights movement is Carter Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro. This applies not just to Africans and African Americans in the United States. There is a miseducation of the white American that's happened. And this is really what Scott has been talking about is the lack of exposure to the conversation, that even if you get into it once a week or once a month, that step that you take in fighting through and learning I do this constantly, not just with friends on Facebook or social media, but face-to-face -face with colleagues, with folks who just have never thought about asking any of the questions or even trying it. My students often come to the class talking about um, Quentin Tarantino's work, whether it used to be Pulp Fiction, now it's Django Unchained. And they'll say, oh, well, they'll try and ask questions that are not formed perfectly or not well informed by the history. And I kind of model for them how to move from a place where that's the only exposure that they have that's fictional and problematic to a place where they can at least participate in a comfortable way, in a safe way, that they don't feel punished for not knowing better. And so from there, I would say the best model I see currently right now for anyone who struggles with entering into a conversation about white supremacy, 
um, is to really take on the work of black women scholars dealing with intersectionality is probably the key word. And then at the forefront of the intersectional analysis that's out there is the work in Afrofuturism. And so I say that looking at um, a really well-recognized African-American writer right now is Ta-Nehisi Coates, the book that he put out that deals with kind of the pain of being a father and facing the kind of risk of continual racial violence. But really his stuff that he's doing with the Black Panther comic under the Marvel Comics um, imprint, which is now Disney, um, that's showing what does an autonomous black utopia look like from the perspective of an African-American, the person of the African diaspora. As white Americans and really people of every ethnic background start to understand the philosophy, the, the epistemology, the worldview of people like Coates, of stretching back Woodson, of black feminist writers, I would say Patricia Hill Collins is at the top of my list. Um, getting in and understanding how these folks write and describe their world, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, the more you encounter just even segments, excerpts of the work they've written, the more profitable and the more open the dialogue is going to become. So I have a question, and I want to first let our listeners know the book that you're referring to by Ta-Nehisi Coates is called Between the World and Me, and it's an excellent, excellent book that I listened to, um, and it's a must-listen to, and, I, and it resonated with me so much as a young man who grew up in West Philadelphia. It felt like he was you know, explaining my life story and how the world has unfolded for me. Um, and I think, and I've met other people, a lot of European Americans who've read it as well, and it really helps them to understand how uh, it was kind of like a coming of age tale um, of the trials and tribulations of growing up African American uh, in the 80s and 90s. So, with that being said, um, I also I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Greeson, but why should they? Why should and bringing this back to economics, why should European Americans as a whole care? They uh, the average European American uh, has 13 times more wealth than the average African American. And based on my uh, dialogues uh, and engaging with people, most European Americans believe that that's just because European Americans have, you know, put themselves in a position to do that. And they don't see how a lot of instances, they don't see how the past has anything to do with it. And, and most of the time they're of the, you know, mindset of, I don't even want to talk about the past. Let's talk about what you can do right now because America is so great. So mm -hmm. they, in a lot of instances, don't game? want to engage on that level. So why should they even care about doing the work that you should, you just suggested? Uh, and economically, why should they care? Because they, and they already have, uh, and I'm speaking when I say they, uh, because I like to be specific, I'm speaking about European Americans in general they already have the, the, the seat at the head of the table across most of the industries in America that build and create wealth. So why should they care about the average African-American? There's two really pointed answers, and I can expand on both of them if you want, but I'll start with the economic one because that's the one that almost no one ever hears. Is, uh, this is going to be one of the main features of my main new book coming out in the next year or two. As European Americans have kind of fooled themselves into buying into um, having 13 times more wealth than the average black household is, is a sign of superiority. Um, what I've found is, whether under slavery or segregation, um, that kind of wealth accumulation is actually stymied by the racial disparity that we maintain. That is, settling for the amount of wealth that the average white household has 
is actually frustrated and it prevents the kind of growth, certainly within the United States, which is the wealthiest country in the world. But those barriers just greatly increase the levels of poverty and debt that white households incur to kind of maintain the barriers. Now, I could go off on the actual math and, and how that actually works, but the perception of stable white wealth growth over the last 200 years basically creates a misperception that wealth grows most rapidly through inequality, and that is a complete lie. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the things I'm going to publish and kind of lay out to change the way we do our economic policy debate. Um, beyond that, beyond the just strict quantitative measure of you do better when folks grow multiple fountains of wealth for everybody that's, po that's possible for, beyond that, the kind of cultural and spiritual cost is the stuff that Dr. King is so good at talking about. Um, and then Baldwin as well, and, and Morrison does it amazingly through her fiction, is that there's a crippling factor for folks who participated in slave ownership or slave trade. There's a crippling factor for folks who just benefit passively from the existence of segregated institutions and neighborhoods, that there is a piece of their soul, there is a piece of their fundamental self that never develops, that never really re accomplishes the kind of comfort and feeling of safety and just human peace of mind that is possible when you actually tear down the barriers of inequality. And so I think within the African-American kind of activist tradition, there's a very keen sense about the spiritual and emotional and, and holistic cost of maintaining, you know, injustice. Um, Frantz Fanon is, is spectacular on this point, that he uses as a metaphor the way that a jailer who goes in and uh, beats his prisoner every day to maintain discipline ultimately becomes a beast himself, that he, he is constantly, as he beats the prisoner, he is beating himself over a period of months and years that eventually he has become as degraded as he intended to inflict injury and degradation on the incarcerated. And so that I think we have a pretty good vocabulary if people want to just encounter it. What I'm trying to show is that on a smaller scale, the way that we imagine wealth and poverty is equally destructive to everybody involved. I believe that holistically, totally, uh, with everything in me, and I get into those uh, debates with family and friends at times, uh, who believe that the you know the way that our capitalistic society is set up uh, that we need uh, a bottom class we need you know people to kind of step on in order for well, that's Marx. those I mean that's classic Karl Marx you know right? yeah classism they, they posit that they posit that very clearly um, mm -hmm. and I think what you move towards is systems that people describe as socialist um, or authoritarian communist these. We, we've fallen into theoretical binaries that simplify our economic debate, and we don't actually look at what we can build for ourselves to maintain Absolutely. social and economic dignity. And if we stop getting trapped in the theoretical schools and put into practice local institution building that prioritizes ending homelessness and getting free energy to different households and making sure everyone has enough to eat, all of a sudden, a new universe, a new theoretical framework emerges for us to employ. 
Absolutely. Uh, I love it. I love it. And that's why I love dialogue, because one of the core tenets of dialogue is that, you know, you bring these two opposing worldviews and you create something that's never been created before. And I recently was speaking to uh, actually the co-founder in, in my tech startup uh, about that concept when we when we spoke about these things. And, you know, he was saying, you know, it's not fair. If millionaires have to, you know, give some of their money to poor people, you know, just kind of that that polarized point of view. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and, and my thing is, man, it's, it's not about capitalism versus socialism. It's about creating something that's never been created before. You know, this is yep. a country of innovators. This is this is a world of innovation in the country, especially America. We pride ourselves on innovation. And yet we continue to look at, you know, quote unquote bums that people. And I'm like, well, how is that even real? Like or, or a concept like working poor. Those things should not exist in a country yep. with all the resources that we have intellectual as well as uh, capital and, and financial resources. When I look at homeless people, I, I feel like we've we've done something totally wrong, and and yeah. when I look at the imp impoverished neighborhoods, I'm like we're doing something wrong. You know, we we are so innovative, but we can't socially innovate. And I, I reject those thoughts, and I believe that it's absolutely possible. Uh, and and it's refreshing to hear you know your sentiments and your work. And I look forward to uh, you know getting to know your work more. And and ultimately, I definitely I'm saying it now. We're going to work together. Uh, and, you know, yeah, in the please. future. And and what I like to ask, and I know that I told you that, uh, you know, we only needed you for one hour, but I had one more question. If you have the time that I'd like I to close out with. So I want to talk to you, uh, ask the question about reparations because, uh, I want to say this for our listeners because of my pride and because of my ambition and because of my indoctrination for a large period of my life, uh, when I became aware of that term in my adulthood, I didn't give it any thought because I'm one of those people who believes that I can go out and get things done and, and make my way because of my God giving, you know, gifts. And so the idea of having a quote unquote handout like reparations, I never really processed it until recently when I got mm -hmm. into this work. And when I got into this work through Race Haven, I had to become more open to, uh, you know, all the various things. When I, when I honed in on eliminating racism and trying to make our, society whole uh in 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 in, in a more harm, harm, harmonious america i couldn't run from the concept of reconciliation and in my mind mm -hmm. when i think about solutions in my mind i always come back to acknowledgement empathy and reconciliation and what i call truth not what i call but the term out there truth and reconciliation and within yeah. reconciliation you can't not think about that without thinking about rep reparations. So I've been reading a, about it more and more frequently. And I mean, recently, I'm sorry. Um, and I want to get your thoughts on it because now, whereas before I was of the you know, mindset of, you know, we have enough structure where anyone can go out and get what they need. I now am a firm believer that some sort of reparations policies are needed if we're ever going to reconcile in this country. Not because Scott wants a handout, because I don't, you know, my pride still says I don't need anything from anyone. But in terms of leveling the playing field and making good on the past wrongs, I feel like, you know, some form of reparation policy is certainly needed in this country. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I've been a part of various coalitions to pursue reparations on multiple scales, um, not just within the United States. Um, for almost 20 years. I think I started with the uh, folks at the Black Radical Congress in 1997. And so, yeah, I, I have been about kind of the 
economic restoration that people of African descent around the world are due for multiple national governments and, and really all kinds of different um, private institutions. I, I've really been at the forefront in the 21st century of calling for institutions of higher education to recognize the way that slavery and the slave trade and segregation, I'm probably the number one advocate on, in the United States saying that segregation must be studied as an economic phenomenon and how that shaped um, public universities, private institutions. And so it's not just about the Congress adopting a reparations resolution. It's not just about state legislatures like we've had in Florida and Oklahoma taking on the uh, process of truth and reconciliation. I think North Carolina has done it as well. All of that needs to happen in a more coordinated, less haphazard fashion. And that, that's what I press for constantly. At the other side of it, though, the thing that kind of sets me apart from some really amazing advocates, um, the folks with Trans-Africa, Bill Fletcher, um, Randall Robinson's kind of approach to the topic, is that they try to give a set number and then decide how they're going to pursue this. Cornell West and Tavis Smiley have taken on similar kinds of discussions. Um, for me, what strikes me about um, a post like you put up, I think it was in the Race Haven group, uh, about the kinds of reparation that have been granted in different historical contexts, is that almost always it's a product of people who already have some degree of economic self-sufficiency, that they, they don't necessarily need the reparations, but they have the force of economic strength to then compel a local estate or an international body to then give an additional kind of symbolic gift of reparations to say, yes, this was wrong, yes, this was terrible, and here we want to apologize and demonstrate our willingness to support your continued growth over a period of time. And I think particularly some of the uh, folks affected by the European Holocaust and particularly Jewish um, folks who were killed or displaced through that genocide, also the way that the uh, Japanese Americans were interned, that they all kind of leveraged an economic strength beyond the institution that they gained the concession from. And, and it seems kind of counterintuitive that folks who are struggling with poverty really need some kind of institutional action to then reverse the fortune. Um, the way it seems to work, as I've looked at it, is that once you've already begun the change and then kind of reverse the economic um, problems is when you can go back and then politically press for the kind of concession that, that traditionally reparations call for. And so this leads to, I think, the article you posted yesterday that I wrote for uh, the BK Nation folks, where I, I want folks to start to think more globally about social justice, whether it's labor unions or trade organizations, you know, any of the kind of traditional foundations, the Catholic church, the black church movement, any social justice network needs to think about the kind of goals they want to implement over a year or three years or five years on a global scale. And so what, I, what I've been doing the last couple of years is pressing for a system, an organized system of economic uh, labor mobility that essentially people can leverage and get access to more work and more pay, greater wages, by migrating for parts of the year. We already do this in a very disorganized fashion that generally suppresses wages in a lot of the world's economies. But there's an enormous vacuum, coalition of national and, and international groups to come together and actually help people who are struggling move from place to place over the course of a year. And it doesn't have to be family movement. You can actually keep a family in a, a relatively... Um, small economy living well 
but give the wage earners within the family, men or women, you know, multiple wage earners in many contexts, the ability to travel internationally so they can get better wages, better work experience, more skills, and it even helps grow new, stable, cooperative enterprise that makes those kinds of families and communities really better protected than we've ever seen in the history of the world. And so for me, a step towards reparations is to get the kind of capital conservatively um, represented by just in the African diaspora, the, the labor market is going to be on the scale of 2 to $3 trillion over the course of a decade. We leverage that to then generate an additional 5 10 $15 trillion in new investment and infrastructure to protect low-income families. I mean, I'm dealing with folks outside, outside the city in Jackson, Mississippi, that don't have running water or access to stable electrical grids. Like, we could change their lives in the space of a year and a half with that kind of network. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for to press for reparations is stronger global infrastructure in the interest of working families. And with that, we could then turn that into stronger financial capital, organized 2 billion, 3 billion people can be met over the next decade. Interesting. Yes, and that was a very, very interesting article and, um, you know, a good article. And quite frankly, I've never read anything about that before uh, in the way that you wrote it or the concept. And, uh, you know, what I what I appreciate appreciate about reading your articles and your work is that it's all solutions focused. And that's the theme of Race Haven is that, you know, it's solutions focused dialogue. And you don't just, you know, tell what's happening, what's interesting about you and your work you not only bring the historical perspective, but you also have implemented actual solutions oriented suggestions and policies and uh, as well as, you know, theories and concepts. So thank you, you know, thank you for contributing uh, to society and society in that way. And, you know, it's interesting because you, again, it's, it's amazing. And man, it's another, we can go on and on and on about some of the questions I have in my mind. I've had to hold back some of the questions I have, but it, it just frustrates me because, the work of people like yourself and so many other historians and sociologists and psychologists and psyche, you know, uh, and just other academics out there who are doing the work, who have, you know, access to answers and suggestions. But yet when you turn on the news, people are saying, well, what's the solution? <laughs> or when uh-huh. you turn on or when you turn on when you go to social media or, and for me, I don't even watch the news. I watch sports. Like that's the only thing I watch. And <laughs> even on, even now, this is you know, social issues have now become a part of the sports you know world, yep. which is a good thing in my opinion. But I get my news that way, like either on Facebook yeah. or through you know the sports shows that I watch and the commentary that now you know they talk about the social issues because athletes are getting involved. So with yep. that being said, it's always like you know, well, what's the solution? Well, you know, and and or. You, what you read on social media, people want to say, but there's no one's doing anything. You know, you hear all this talk, but no one's doing anything. But yet we get on a show like this and I speak to you and, and here's 20 years of you doing things. So yeah. it, it just boggles my mind or Dr. Joy DeGraw, who talks about or I don't know if I said her name right, DeGroy, uh, mm-hmm. who has the post-traumatic slave syndrome research. When people say, well, I don't know why. You know, uh, African-Americans are, uh, well, let's say like this, poor, young, traumatized African-Americans who are victims of generational poverty are killing each other at such a high disproportionate rate. 
when people yeah. want to say, I don't know why, I'm like, well, read or listen to Dr. Joy DeGroy's work. The 12 yeah. years of research went into post-traumatic slave syndrome, and I can go on and on. And it frustrates me that individuals like yourself and her and so many others don't have a greater voice in society. So, you know, I no, just you're helping. You're helping. Doing shows like this makes a substantial impact. So keep up the work, and I'm always available, man. You got other things we want to come back and do? Just let me know. And, um, oh, you mentioned uh, Dr. Joy's work. There's a great article at the African American Intellectual His- History Society that talks a great deal about that. And so I'll send you guys the links, post them up on Race Haven. But you definitely want to check out um, the acronym is AAIHS. If you punch that into Google, you'll get the entire archive. They're doing some amazing work to kind of provide more solutions, more knowledge to help us deal with the crisis that we're in. Absolutely. Thank you for that resource. Um, John, do you have anything you'd like to add or ask before we close out? No, I just want to say thank you because it really has been uh, a tremendously influential and educational hour. And uh, I wish we were going to be able to spend more time. Uh, I'll throw out there, as Scott just mentioned, anytime you'd like to be back. Um, I enjoy listening to you and we'll be doing a lot more reading on the information that you've shared with us. Can't wait to work with you guys more. Thank you again so much. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Well, that's our time for today. So, again, I want to say just a special thank you to both my co-host, John Costino, and our, uh, our guest, Dr. Walter Greeson. And before I let you go, Dr. Greeson, I just want to uh, ask you to let our listeners know how they can uh, reach out to you and your work and, and learn more about your work. What's the best way to connect with you? I would say right now, social media generally is multiple platforms. So um, I have a new Instagram is at uh, D-U-B-D-E-E-G-E-E-W-D-G, my initials. Um, or you can find me on Twitter. This is another really good platform. I put out a lot of stuff. Um, it's at, at World Professor, W-O-R-L-D-P-R-O-F-E-S-S-O-R, World Professor. I'm on LinkedIn under my regular name, Walter Grayson. You can catch me on Facebook. I have a number of book pages where I do classroom discussions on almost a daily basis. Um, But, yeah, any of those four spots on social media, you can catch me right away. And they all have my email address, and and a couple of them have my office telephone number, so you'll always be able to catch me whatever way is most convenient. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And we appreciate your time, and we will certainly uh, have you on again in the future. So to close out the show, I want to, uh, let's see here. Give me a second here. All right. So I want to say to our listeners to please be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven podcast on the iPhone podcast app or Stitcher radio app for Android so that you never miss the dialogue or a special interview like we were able to conduct today. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on the podcast and Stitcher apps. Uh, This will help our show gain more visibility and we and help us to gain more listeners. Also, John and I want to hear from you. Uh, we want to hear from you about today's show uh, or any show or any message you want us to get to uh, Dr. Greeson, who is our guest today. You can send that to the email address solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. And we will uh, have a chance to read uh, every once in a while. We may get a chance to read some of your perspectives uh, or your questions on the show please visit the Race Haven Podcast Facebook page um, or racehavenpodcast.com and leave comments and questions about today's show. You can also join our online community by joining the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group. 
If today's episode resonated with you, please share it uh, with your friends on social media, email, text message, however you share things, please get the word out. A race haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.